This New America NYC event was recorded on August 12, 2015, and is titled We Come as Friends, a social cinema screening in collaboration with the African Leadership Academy, and features Tim McChristian, Hubert Sopper, Dirk Sigar, Esther Soma, and Daya Olapade. So uh, this film is incredibly textured. Um, it's visually stunning. I think one of the um, conceits that sort of obsess I'm obsessed with when I think about Africa is really mapping it. And something that is comes across in the opening monologue of the film is this idea of Africa being discovered over and over again. Um, discovered, of course, in air quotes. But I'm curious, as you went through this journey, making this film in this somewhat unorthodox way, um, what did you discover? I don't mean that to be a banal question, but really just to, to find out from you what you believe that this film is about. Another banal question, but there's lots of themes coursing through it. Yes, please. Yeah, hi. Uh, um, thanks for the invitation. Uh, how, how long do we have time to talk? And it's just to, to know how, how quick uh, we, we should answer about, you. We have about half an hour. Okay. And I, uh, in advance, will warn all of you that I will be very strict about keeping time to make sure we can hear from everyone as well as the audience. Yeah, well, I, I will talk as little as possible because you, you saw the movie and the movie speaks for itself, I guess, better than I do. Um, what have I discovered? Um, that's the movie, what I've discovered. I'm, I mean, what you discover in these kind of trips is that things are not what they seem to be, you know, in general. <laughs> And um, the, uh, we have developed, I think we in the West, uh, uh, developed a, a narrative which is uh, what Africa is, uh, which is very consensual. And we are all kind of agree that there's chaos, you know, in our minds from the news, from the, so there's chaos and, uh, and it has to be developed. And uh, we have to send our missionaries and our UN and UN. <laughs> these guys, <laughs> uh, and then order will come and democracy will come and Jesus Christ, etc. you know. Um, so, yeah, this narrative is known and uh, when you spend a lot of time and when you spend the time uh, like I did with my tiny team in a very odd way, of course, to kind of fall from the sky, then you start to develop a way, um, a kind of a capacity to see things very differently. differently. And things suddenly become very strange, and and then when you're a filmmaker, you can capture the strangeness, and you kind of become strange too. So that's what happened to me, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean yeah. those those visual perspectives are really remarkable and very stunning as a a new way of seeing um, the planet. Um, I guess to probe a little further into that, that methodology, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with the story of how this film was created, could you share more about like, why you chose to, to start from literally you know, several thousand feet up, as well as you know, going into sort of a very intimate, um, sort of interpersonal, close shots of, of different people in South Sudan? Um. Yeah, you know, as as a, as a writer or a journalist or a filmmaker, um, 
you 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 kind of are driven by certain ideas and and uh, what you what you need to f figure out usually is how to get access to to places, how to get access to human beings, how to get access to their kind of landscape of of of, of their minds and how to their hearts and and so the airplane was um, the key of this whole project. So it was we I built it with my little team on on my farm actually in France. And we also needed the time to build the airplane to kind of reflect on what we're going to do, you know. And we are obviously Europeans, as you can see. Um, and we also repeat, despite ourselves, all these patterns, you know, just like going to other, other uh, places, uh, discovering adventure. The notion of adventure is not, is a very European kind of colonial uh, idea, right? going to different worlds and, and, and science fiction, by the way, the science fiction narrative is a post-colonial phenomenon, right? It's going to, uh, traveling through time and space and penetrating to these new, these other worlds and encountering these kind of sometimes hostile, sometimes friendly uh, other beings. <laughs> uh, so this, this narrative comes from colonial times. Yeah. And that's why I used the, the, the metaphor of, of, of space travel also uh, as a kind of... Um, uh, uh, intellectual game for this movie, you know, like as, as a as a kind of twink, Clandoy, yeah. yeah. right? Uh, but uh, yeah, so yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I've never had a movie made about an experience that I have had, um, and I'm curious to hear from you, Esther, to the extent that this film depicts uh, your nation um, and the themes in it, whether it's colonization, whether it's um, extractive industries, whether it's um, conflict, the whole like, you know, three-legged stool of, of like African poverty porn. Um, to the extent that those things are present in the film, how closely does it conform to experiences that you have had? Um, and, and I'm just curious to hear from you, your perspective on seeing this film and the, the mirroring back of a place you know well. Thank you, Dario. So um, as you know, I'm like from South Sudan. And uh, I, did not, I did not necessarily grow up in South Sudan. I grew up in Nairobi, but uh, my family moved back right after independence. And I go back every summer, so I've been back. I was last back in December, and I haven't been back this summer. So um, after watching the film, I had a wave of emotions. Where there were times I was really side-eyeing, and I was like, no, 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 I don't agree with that. And there were times I was like, yeah, that's actually true. But one thing that was for sure is that I felt like it represented the complexities of the challenges that my country currently faces in its, all its diversity, some that I did not know of. For instance, the American evangelicals, I did not know about that. So as I was watching the film, uh, it was taking me through, as it was jumping around, it was not necessarily like a clear narrative, like, oh, we're going from this place to this place, but you jump from like the UN, then the Chinese, then you'd go to the, um, what is this called? You go to the American evangelicals, and for me, it represented the complexity of the challenges and how I view it. Like, for instance, my first time back in Juba, I got off the plane and I was the only person going to the national line. Everyone else on the flight was an international person going to the international line. I'm like, okay, am I in South Sudan, you know? Then I go through, I see all this NGO cars all lined up. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Then I go to my internship place and they treat me differently because you go to Yale. Then I see how they treat the people who could be my mom and dad in another way because they are the locals. And I come back home and I'm like, what's going on? I go back to my uncle's place. Someone's building the wall and they're Chinese. And I'm like, 
Shouldn't the South Sudanese be doing that instead? So for me, just represented the whole complex challenges that and the wave of emotions that I go through. So I feel like the film did a good job of that. But at the same time, I felt like some reality was not shown. Like some of the realities in Juba. In Juba, as I'm going through, I can picture myself right from the airport heading home. Yes, you will see the house made of stone, people dressed up, but you'll also see right next to it a mud hut and like kids probably running around, you know? So I didn't see as much of that hopeful side, but at the same time, I saw the focus on the ch was on the challenges and I think they did a, the film did a good job of representing that, though I wished more of this reality was shown. Yeah, and I think there is some... Um bias broadly for depicting uh, moments of great intensity, um, whereas the vast majority of time in Africa, and if we can even identify such a concept, is very ordinary. And so depicting ordinariness actually becomes extraordinary. And I would say that in this film, there were moments of just sort of quiet people having experiences but it is hard in a situation where there is so much complexity from a geopolitical level, um, from a societal development level, not to focus on these things. It's, it, it would almost seem inappropriate not to pay attention to these important questions. Um, but it's a very delicate balance for sure. Um, Dirk, I would love to hear from you about the evolution of South Sudan essentially from the end of this film to the present. Um, for those who may not be aware, there's been... Uh, well, I'll let you fill the, the, the audience in on what's been going on in the country, but things have changed significantly since, when was the film wrapped? 2012, which was also the last time I was in South Sudan. So three years hence, what's been going on in the country and what's your, your gloss on it for us? Yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, for me, the, the film, before I get to that, I mean, very much represented uh, almost, I mean, it was clearly a story about South Sudan and, and what's going on there. But at the same time, for me, it represented a larger story about almost a, kind of the, a universal story about how people who have power will inevitably exploit people who have no power or have less power um, if there's no regulation, if there's no law, if there's no way to counter that and hold people accountable. And I mean, South Sudan is one of the newest countries and you see that at all levels, right? So it's not just, I mean, it was some emphasis on the on the external part, which really helps in the alienation of, of things, right? People almost coming from another world into, on, into, into this world. Um, but also you see that all levels from the big international corporations to uh, other powers within Africa to people within South Sudan themselves who uh, are, if they have the chance, then exploiting uh, some of the inequalities that are there up to the very, very local village level where you see all these things happening. And um, that brings me to the point where when, I mean, I've been in and out of, of South Sudan first as a journalist and as a humanitarian and then last uh, stint as a peacekeeper for the last sort of 10 years. Um, and I came in last time, uh, two years ago, just before the crisis started, which was basically a struggle for power between uh, the, the president and the vice president, which uh, just at a moment of relative hope, when people were hoping that, you know, after such a long uh, history of suffering, South Sudan would come to, uh, to, to peace finally. You saw some of the celebrations, and those celebrations were huge when they when they happened. And you see that, you know, at, at the local level, the two most powerful men, just when they have the chance to do something good to the, 
to the, the country, they come into conflict and literally, the, I mean, South Sudan has descended into horrible, horrible violence uh, over the last uh, two years to the extent that in the peacekeeping operation where I, I, I worked, um, we have now almost 200,000 people inside our military bases uh, who literally came running for their lives because what started as a political conflict and descended as a, into more of an ethnic uh, conflict sort of aligned with the ethnicities of the of the two people fighting each other and unfortunately it's very easy to see within South Sudan from which ethnic background you are uh, people have often tribal scarring on their foreheads it becomes very very real so when this started it became very personal and very uh, local and communal very quickly and you saw just massive killing happening and people were just running for a safe place yet again which was just horrible and heartbreaking uh, to see. And now, two years later, almost, there are still about 200,000 people who are simply too afraid to get out of our military base. So they just have been sitting there for the last two years. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the chief indignities of, of poverty, broadly, is not having the ability to plan, right? Layer on the situation of conflict, um, and the ability and the dignity in planning is, is also sort of thrown to the wind. Um, one thing that always blows my mind when I think about South Sudan and Sudan in general is that it's a country irrigated by the Nile. It is some of the most fertile farmland that we have on this planet. And yet, um, one of the first encounters I had with South Sudan was actually in Kenya when members of the fledgling Ministry of Agriculture in South Sudan came to Kenya to learn from Kenyans how to plant crops. Because the, the memory and institutional knowledge of agricultural practices had been dispersed as people had been dispersed over the long sort of you know, quarter century of war. Um, and so I think that's just another example of ways in which these kinds of military conflicts actually end up holding an entire region hostage economically and from all other manner of development perspectives. Um, to this question of the military, um, I'm not sure exactly how I want to direct this question, but it was a sort of persistent drumbeat in the film of uh, regiments marching, even children in that seat at the school sort of um, pantomiming a kind of military culture. And because I haven't spent enough time in South Sudan to really assess how that fits in, it does seem to me that um, the history of war has created that kind of dynamic, um, reporting on uh, the Ministry of Petroleum and, and so forth, it, it, I noticed that a lot of the ministers were actually people who had been part of the military. And so having like the military transformed into the government hasn't always worked out that well. So I guess, Esther, for you, I'm curious if you feel that there's a kind of military culture within South Sudan, and to hear from you, Derek, a little bit more about, I mean, you said there's 200,000 peacekeepers. Um, or no, 200,000 people in your compound. There we go. Uh, I'm just curious to, to, to hear about that dynamic. I mean, we hear about peace, but we're seeing war. <laughs> okay, so um, going to the kids marching and everything, it's interesting because when I was watching the film, I was at the back with my friend who's from Malawi, and we're joking that we actually did that in school. She did that in Malawi, and I did that in Kenya. And so it was one of those things that we actually did in school, like scouts or gal guides, we would do that. So I didn't interpret it like as militaristic per se, but I interpret it as like, oh, we did that in school, like scouts would do that. But in regards to like military members turned 
government officials. That happened in South Sudan. Yeah. And it's because for the years of the war, the people who were the leaders were the military guys. Yeah. And um, you expect like someone like Salva Kiir, the president, he was leading a war and he changed out of his military outfits, put on a suit and now was the president of the country. And um, this unfortunately is the case and I can see it being the case for a few years because there's this mentality of we are rewarding ourselves for the years of the war that were fought. So like, oh, we fought in the war. This is our time now to go back and like, this is our time to take leadership. So I'm seeing that, but I do have hope that there is a generation rising and within time, this generation will pass away. And that generation is coming up of people who, who actually have had the chance to like gather the skills and can come and impact it back in South Sudan. I look at classmates that I went to, like to my in my high school, African Leadership Academy. People are already making a difference in South Sudan. So yes, that is the case for now, that, but that will not always be the case. That will not always be the case indeed. Yeah. Um, yes, well, I think that is where things need to go, right? It needs, um, you have a, a, a generation, uh, or actually multiple generations. I mean, South Sudan has been at war since independence, since almost immediately. So that's half, half a century of war. So a lot of people have never experienced anything else. Uh, a lot of uh, children have you know dealt with guns from very very early on, um, so there is definitely a a deeply ingrained military culture, guerrilla culture, and you see that in all kind of different ways. And so indeed, people who um, used to be guerrilla uh, fighters, and I was a Sudan correspondent when the war between North and South was still going on, and I met quite a few of the you know the the, the people who later up ended up in in places of very significant power in their fatigues there where you know they were just giving marching orders but of course i think the requirements of a politician and people to lead a country in peacetime are very different from a much more regimented sort of command and control yeah. uh, attitude that you need in yeah. uh, at wartime um, yeah. so it is that there needs to be a new generation but at the same time i think there is a a big problem obviously now that's the amount of destruction that is happening to the current generation of South Sudan is is really unprecedented. I mean, in the, the level of destruction, and, and partly because it is a, a struggle now between South Sudanese themselves, it's very, very personal. And a lot of the people who are fighting each other, they know themselves intimately, right? These are groups that have been living next to each other for a long time, or these have been people who have been in the rebellion for decades fighting together, now fighting each other. So it becomes very personal and the level of destruction is is just enormous. A place, uh, you know, one of the biggest towns in South Sudan uh, called Malakal, which was never um, destroyed during the North-South War of, of several decades, has been raised to the ground several times over in just the last two years. Right, right, no, that's um, obviously incredibly distressing to hear. Um, one, one line from the film that I remember with particularity is um, an older man talking about gangsters. Um, and in some ways referring to the political leadership in South Sudan. And another sort of thing that's thematic across different geographies in Africa and in many other parts of the world is this divorce between the citizen and the state. Where the state is this thing and 
in a state like South Sudan, it's brand new. It's got a flag. It's got currency. There's all the, the state stuff so that we know it's a state. But that there's this huge divide between that apparatus and an ordinary person. And I really felt like that, that um, the word that that man chose really reflected that bankruptcy, which you see, again, across the continent. And I'm just curious to hear, I mean, there is also at the same time, in, in my experience at least, a sort of nationalistic pride, like a very intense feeling that South Sudan like must be. And you hear when Salva Kiir speaks that it's about, we are going to keep this oil, this is going to be for our country. And the knowledge that there's an incredible resource wealth, an incredible potential, that it is um, intention, I think. And so broadly the question in Africa, and, and for me at least, is who, not what needs doing, which is development and all this, but who should do it? And I'm just curious, like, how that, in going forward, that balance between people and, and politics and power, like, where, how we, how, how to sort of make that more of an equilibrium, I guess. Because right now it does seem that so much power is concentrated in the state, and people like Hillary Clinton care about the state, whereas people seem somehow left behind. And that's kind of an open question, um, maybe for you, Esther. I think on that, I, the one thing that I can see being able to bridge that gap is uneducated people. Uh -huh. With the lack of education, it's very easy for the leaders to keep on manipulating the people. So for me right now, when I think of South Sudan, I think of education. We need a population that is educated. And once we have education, I believe that we can get to a point where we can challenge the leaders and demand the power that is De deserved by us, you know? So as much as they're there right now, it's just very easy to be manipulated. And on the outside side, like looking at it from a different, I'm like, I can see the manipulation, you know? But at times when you're talking to like your cousins or something, and um, probably who I have relatives who haven't really had the opportunity to get an education and talking to them and there's a, that disconnect. And I feel like education will fill that gap in, in a big way. Um. Hubert, I have a question that is kind of a meta question, which is like, how do people talk to you about this film when they see it? Um, where are you in the sort of narrative of Africa, having done now two films that, that address issues in the Horn of Africa, um, having spent you know, hours and hours with the footage and in, 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 on location, um, and people come to talk to you about your movies and about Africa. What do they say and, and how do you respond? Um, yeah, well, I spent years and years and years, not hours, you know, working. Oh, I know with the footage. Yeah. I didn't, yeah, the footage, too, you know. <laughs> um, and, and it's hard to answer because people are very diverse, but uh, I, I don't know, in this crowd here, I, I think uh, a lot of you are puzzled, right, about what you just saw, I guess, and uh, a lot of people, pardon? I didn't hear that. No, not puzzled. Right, but, but I, I, I think, um, I don't know, I, I, I don't make movies about Africa, I just make films in Africa. I guess because I'm European and Europe and Africa have this like thousands of years of dialectic, you know, the north-south dialectic and it's very, it's a very pathological relationship, you know, because from slave trade to uh, colonization to globalization, these three waves of, of, of sheer uh, humiliation towards your, your continent, right? Um, 
terrifying humiliation and terrifying patterns which kind of repeat, you know, like Mark Twain said, history never repeats itself, but it rhymes. Uh, so slave trade was already a kind of globalism and, and colonization was kind of globalization too. And, and inside of globalization, there is slave slavery and, and colonization, new colonization, colonialism, which I, I was trying to kind of describe, these demons of, of the past. And the, those demons and those things that kind of come out of people's mouths without, almost despite themselves, without a bad intention, you know, that the American ambassador, I don't think he's, 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 he's a smart and nice man, you know, but he says something that comes from hundreds of years ago, and he says, we bring you light, and which, which signifies, which means that you are that you are dark and I'm light and I'm also bright because I'm from and I'm clean and you are not and there's all these things that that made this relationship so sick you know and toxic right um, right uh, thank you for giving me some light here <laughs> yeah and I take it back I, I, I but so so what I want to do is is I guess um, is to stir up you know these uh, settlements of thought and of, of culture that we think are no longer there, but they are there, you know, it's like this, this, this um, le, le fond, I don't know, it's nobody, um, so, and, and all you can do is with, with, with cinema, this, the amazing thing is that you can, you can stretch, because you, because you were, you are here for two hours on a, on a journey, right? You're on this, on this trip, you know, you were, we were with me in this little airplane and you were with us filmmakers, uh, in this like uh, thread of, of thoughts and, and, uh, and detours and, and, uh, and looking for, for sense of this whole nonsense sometimes, you know, it's like a lot of times I'm, I mean, a lot of times in this situation being in, in, in you're a beautiful country. We as filmmakers were like, what the hell are we doing? You know, what are we doing here? You know, we're just another set of white guys. And what, what are we doing? <laughs> and, and then you know, sometimes you go like, okay, we're going to make a movie, but this is, but doesn't make a sense at all. And sometimes you go, it makes no sense at all. And um, ultimately, all those little fragments of, of, Stories are stories about the human condition, and it's very universal. And um, and again, you know, it happens to be in South Sudan this this film, but it can be actually be anywhere, you know, and, and anywhere and at any time also, you know. Um, so that's the kind of the magic of cinema is that that it that it can bring us into um, a, a, a state of almost hypnosis as a, as a spectator, where your mind can see like a movie but you can be so so much further and you can connect to your own you as a spectator your own life's experience and your own like uh, shortcuts and your own creativity of your thoughts that make sense and it, i think ideally the art of cinema which it is um is giving you this freedom of thought and and i am not from the school of filmmakers who are going to um, a foreign place to come back and tell you all I know and to tell you this is what I saw and here it is and uh, and I know the truth and just uh, ask me for solutions and I'm going to give it to you know I'm, I I have absolutely 
I don't, well, not no solutions, I have solution. Solution for me is to try to make movies, you know, and not to be broke constantly, but... <laughs> But, yeah. but uh, it's uh, yeah. For me, this is a, a great moment. I mean, this is a great moment right now. So because we're we're connecting, we're here yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the movie. Uh, but it's much more than a movie. The movie is just the, the spark yeah. of, of the debate. Absolutely. You know. So, um, and the film yeah. is out. The film is out on Friday uh, at IFC. Um, so. I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to take questions from folks, but I do think it would, be, it would be imprudent not to address a common question, both at events that I do for the book I wrote or in any conversation about Africa and in this film, which is China. So the Chinese presence in Africa, there are an estimated one million Chinese nationals living across the continent. Some proportion of them live in South Sudan, as in other countries across the continent. I've encountered them. We've probably all encountered them. They're in the film. Um, people are sometimes eager to like, make sense of that. Like, what do we make of China and Africa? Um, another provocation to add is that, you know, President Barack Obama was in, um, in Addis just a few weeks ago talking about the conflict in South Sudan, uh, having an American presence in, on the continent, but... Uh, Ultimately, I, 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 it's not very often that he's there, and the Chinese are sort of ever-present. And so I'm curious to hear um, from you, Dirk, I guess, what you see um, in terms of the Chinese presence in Juba, beyond what we saw, and what you make of it from your perspective. Um, and Esther, I guess, any thoughts you have about um, you know, this particular dynamic as someone living in the U.S. and have a relationship with the U.S. And, and the balance between China and America and Africa? What do I make of Chinese in Africa? I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't really know how to answer the question. I mean, I, I know that it, I mean, from a global perspective, it's a, 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 a growing trend, right? That you see more and more Africa, as Chinese investment in Africa. And with that, because a lot of the implementation of that investment is done by Chinese companies themselves, you see uh, more and more Chinese. But... There are also more and more Malaysians that are coming uh, and also doing a lot of work. I mean, there are a lot of Americans, there are a lot of Europeans, there are a lot of Turkish uh, yeah. people coming, Middle Eastern people, I mean, a lot of Lebanese traders. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of that coming. And then there's, I personally, one of the reasons I work for the United Nations, I love how different nations come together and then try to resolve things together. I think the key thing is whether the relationship is equal. Right? and whether there's not an exploitative relationship in that. And whether that is the case it happens very much in, in terms of how that relationship is managed. And that then comes very much to, then to the African leaders who are willing to do and manage that relationship in a way that is beneficial for their population as a whole, rather than in corrupt ways and, and, and with the money ending up in their own pockets, and then they, you know, they can sign away whole tracts of land that is not really the government's land, right? You have all kind of indigenous rights, human rights, all those things then come into play that are totally brushed aside by individuals who basically misuse that relationship that is there. In other countries like Botswana, where you have very rich natural resources as well, um, it gets reinvested. In, uh, and it's a long tradition since independence in the population itself. So you have fr absolutely free healthcare and free education, including university education, for all people in Botswana. 
And you know, so there are different ways how you can manage that. And so I don't think there's a Chinese problem as such. I think it is how do you manage that relationship with all foreigners that come to your country that create opportunities and real opportunities, yep. but also a huge dangers if it's mismanaged. You know, I think often as a species, we have a very good sense of like what needs doing. Um, we have fantastic scientific and technical capabilities. We have um, unbelievable resources, however unevenly distributed. And it's not really what, but like who should do it? Who should do what? And that is where we sort of grind our gears and have debates that like this one. Um, and, and for the most part, I would say that, you know, I think people in Africa are welcoming other parties than the United States, because if the US isn't going to show up, you know, Kanye shrug, like there will be others who show up and who do the work that needs doing. Um, Esther, do you have any thoughts about the Chinese presence at all before I open it up to the crowd? <clears throat> I, I feel like um, I'm the same way with you. I don't think I've figured it out, like the US, America, the US, China, and like South Sudan in particular. But one thing I noticed, like I study here, one thing I noticed, it's easy for the US to like... Um, like, I remember the African leaders were brought to the U.S. to meet Obama, you know? But you'll find the Chinese leaders themselves going to the continent to meet the leaders, you know? So you see that interaction whereby the U.S. is saying, oh, we're very skeptical of China in Africa. But at the same time, when you go to the ground, the Chinese are in the markets doing the research and developing things, you know? So you ask yourself, is China, the U.S. just being skeptical? Are they afraid that their position as a superpower in the continent is being taken away? But then on the other hand, I look at the Chinese and I'm like, oh, yes, you're here saying you're developing, but you're bringing your own people to do the development project itself. And the locals would probably, the people from South Sudan would be the ones to like do these jobs, but these jobs are done by the Chinese who don't necessarily speak the language. Communication is an issue. And then I recently heard of like the Chinese are training an army to protect them in the mining places. And I'm like, what is going on there? That raises a big question mark. And... Um, a good example like of China and the US, I'm, I was traveling, I went to, in December, I traveled to my rural home and in my dad's side of the, going to my dad's area, the road, road was not paved and there was a portion that had been paved, but it had collapsed. I wouldn't say if it was the Chinese or the US that had done the road. I go to my mom's side of the family, the road was really smoothed out. I wouldn't say if it was the Chinese or the US that built the road, you know? So you ask yourself, who is building, who is setting a lasting impact here? Is throwing money, is giving speeches enough? Is being on the ground doing things, but also at the same time, not necessarily like building the population, making a difference? So I feel like there's no clear cut answer to it, honestly. Yeah. We are very much at the end of time, but I want to make sure you have the chance to address that question and that you have the chance to address that question. So. I think you, you, you take the mic first, and we'll just do 30 seconds, and then... Yeah, you, we, we have a deal. Esther is the feel-good ending, and I'm the feel-good, feel-bad guy, so I'm, I'm making... <laughs> so, right, even makes, don't laugh at me, this is, this is true. And I, 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 I had a headline after my last film, uh, Darwin's Nightmare, in one of the big American papers, I don't know where, said, it said, the feel-bad movie of the year. Um, which is fine. It was I, I thought it was a good definition, you know. And I think uh, uh, these kinds of films—it's a good question. Huh? Um, 
there's no, there's not European and African narrative. I think uh, um, the Europeans shaped the narrative a lot, of course, because uh, they were over the centuries the ones who wrote down their version of history, right? Um, and um, but but the thing is, well, this kind of movies. Uh, this is not a movie about South Sudan, and he doesn't claim to say this is South Sudan and this is how it is, and uh, this is the real picture, this is the real truth, you know. This is an interpretation, uh, and it's an interpretation from a man uh, with a camera, and, uh, and it took me years to think how to interpret my view of my journey, of my thinking, and I think it is important to know that these kinds of films have to be seen in a, inside of a spectrum of, of uncountable voices, you know? Uh, because what comes out of Africa is a lion running about a zebra after a zebra, which is actually a good remark. A lot of films have animals, thanks to the BBC, by the way, a lot, you know, because my, my distributor. Um, the BBC is probably doing their mea culpa by buying my film now, so. Um, and, uh, but this is, this is a very personal uh, a film and, you, and if you see it inside of the scope of all the films that come out of Africa, it is one voice and it's a voice that I think is true to what I see, not because I'm European or, or uh, but because I'm Hubert and I, I do what I can, you know, and in, in the, in the Comparison of, of the heroes and the collaborateurs, how do you say collaborateurs, uh, people who will run with the flow. If I compare the politicians I met uh, compared to the people who, who really fight and really make a difference, the ratio is, is very disproportional. And the ratio is more or less what, I, what you see in the movie. You see this woman called Celestine, she's a, she sings the song, My Land, My Land. She, she absolutely is very eloquent, she knows exactly where, where we are standing at this point. She has a, a historical kind of view on things. She's very wise and she carries a lot of hope, I think, for me. But she's a minority. And she's also, I think, inside of my film, a minority. And, and the majority are people who are running on billions of some oil company who are bringing the, the, like the two warlords at this point, what you said, which is very important to know. It's like, it's a very important point, it's like two people are holding a whole country on hostage. Why? Because they are not agreeing who is going to sign the next contract with Chevron or British Petrol. And each one wants to do that, so they are fine with like killing a half a million people um, until they kind of come to an agreement, you know. So, so the ratio between the people who, who do make a, a difference, who we want to see as heroes, who we want to hold on and say, well, they're carrying hope and uh, they're in minority. And yeah. also, and the last thing... I have thing, to cut you off in okay, the interest of no, time, so give say, Esther the last word, uh, because last, I was told we must be out of here last, at 9 o'clock, and okay. we are not. I'm very well, sorry. Well, last word, last word is when you end a film on a hopeful note, uh, it is politically a bit counterproductive. I think when you're stirred up and angry, even angry at the film, it is probably more productive in a, in, a, in, a, in a political sense. If you go home and go online and, and talk to your friends and you, see, and you say, what, you know what I just saw, this really, really stirred me up and angered me. So as, as a filmmaker, I don't want to comfort you. I want to discomfort you. So I hope this worked, you know. Great, <laughs> so. yes.
just your 10 seconds. Um, yes, after graduation, I graduate next year. Um, I, def I, I know I'll be going back and contributing to South Sudan. And uh, with the high school, I went to African Leadership Academy. We're required to go back. And without that requirement, I would still go back because I love South Sudan. But at the same time, I have a very international feel. Um, so uh, in regards to if I have hope for South Sudan, yes, I do have hope for South Sudan. And I'm going to share a very quick story. Uh, after watching this film, I was very, I was feeling really sad. And it was the same feeling that I felt when the massacre in Bantu took place last year or when the conflict has been raging for a very long time. But one thing that I go back to is um, one, a story that was shared by one of my favorite role models, Wangari Mathai. And it was a story of a hummingbird. So the forest was on fire. It was burning up. All the animals ran outside and they were watching the forest burn. And a little hummingbird decided that, oh, I'm going to run to the river, get a drop of water and pour it on the forest. The elephant looks at it and is like, you little hummingbird, what are you doing? The little drops you're pouring won't make a difference. But the hummingbird just keeps on going back to the river and dropping it in the, dropping it in the forest. And um, as I was looking at this, the hummingbird, despite all the moking, the hummingbird touched them and is like, yes, I may be little. The elephant may have its huge trunk. The lion may be there and not doing anything about it. But as a little hummingbird, I will do the best that I can. And as I think of South Sudan, yes, it may be a forest burning up, but I know there are little hummingbirds doing the best they can. That's it. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.